Welcome to Marafaya, the show that dives into the climate crisis in Belize. I'm Andre. And I'm Digna. Today we'll be talking about hurricanes with Shelton DeFore, National Coordinator for the National Emergency Management Organization, to discuss NEMO's role in emergency response during hurricanes, the role civilians play in emergency response, and how global warming is altering the way storms move and change. And before that, I'll be talking to Katie Numi Usher and Marissa Sabal, two artists collaborating on an embroidery show at the Image Factory in Belize City, opening July 15th. Before we begin our discussion, we'll be sharing our Moment of Gratitude, One Minute of Rage. Each week, Andrea and I swap a moment of gratitude for a minute of rage on any topic that's been on our minds in the past week. This week, I'm going to start out with um, my moment of gratitude. And this week, I am grateful for bread, Um, just straight up bread. I bought a nice loaf of French bread on Friday, and I've just been eating chunks of it whenever I'm feeling a little bit peckish and uh, it's been quite a treat. So thanks to bread and the people who make it. I've made bread before and I've never enjoyed making bread. I've enjoyed having bread done, but bread making is a chore to me. So I'm appreciated there's those who do it and do it well. French bread, that's the first time I've heard of that. Like when you said bread, I was like, what? That has a lot of carbs. Like, why are you thankful for something that has so much carbs? But French bread, I like, what's that? Like, I don't think we have that here. I mean, I got it from a baker that was selling it at a at a market nearby. So it's it was it was good. What do you have against carbs, man? You're too young to be thinking about carbs like that. Not like that, but like you know, just having bread as a snack. Like oh, just ch- like how you're doing it right now. It's just like hmm. it's just what one one thing I'm doing. And uh, I think if you were eating this bread, you would you would think otherwise. <laughs> Probably that's why I have to try it. French bread. Okay, nice. All right, since Andre has shared his moment of gratitude, it's now my time to share my minute of rage. And my minute of rage this week has to do with, actually, it's it's something more of what's been going on and it still hasn't solved anything. The government has been complaining and crying that we're broke. Oh, we're broke. That's why we're doing this. That's why the 10% cut is necessary. But all of that, to me, they're just words and their actions are saying everything else. Like, for example, that they are thinking about increasing salary for the governor general. Um, And then just last night, I saw that apparently the price of food will go up because the where we get our fertilizer has increased by 100% the sale price. So now we're going to have to feel, feel the pain. And to me, it's like, isn't the government's job to like find solutions and ways so that we don't get to feel what's really going on like there to me it's just excuse after excuse after excuse and I'm really getting tired that honestly um these past weeks I've been taking a break from social media because every time I enter it's just something negative and I feel it, it it's like affecting my mental health so I'm just trying to like live in some sort of ignorant bliss every once in a while but it's difficult every time I enter on Facebook and I see some news that what the government is doing and it's just oh my god like when is this going to stop when are they actually going to start and do something and put their plan blue in action I don't think that's going to happen I don't think that was ever the intent of making that happen but that and I don't think that's cynicism Uh, I think some you know I totally hear what you're saying and I understand the anger and it's good that you're taking breaks from social media I am 
Yeah. I feel like I can't be disappointed by this administration because I was never really of the opinion that they would really be working towards substantive change because there really is no incentive towards them doing that. It would really be based on them being like, you know, quote unquote, good people. And mm, I think that's sort of silly to expect that of politicians who, for the most part, enter political life because they're trying to alter some aspect of society or economy for their personal benefit. It's not typically about the betterment of their constituents. Yeah, that's so sad to think about. I mean, but once you accept that that's the truth, then you can work towards fighting towards something that's better. You just have to accept what it is. True. That's very true. I agree with that. I think I think it's good that well, that piece I actually shared with you. I shared a piece with uh, Digna earlier that on a newsletter that's all about discontinuity and how the climate crisis brings that. I will share that in the show notes, but I think it's a really good piece to read on basically how the climate crisis has put us in a place where we can't really depend on our analysis of the past to determine our future actions because our future is an uncharted ocean of crises that have no connection with what previously was considered to be the norm. And that perfectly ties into our episode for this week, because one of the things about hurricanes that I speak to with Mr. DeFore from Nemo is the fact that the climate crisis has changed the way in which we see tropical storms and their brethren of various strengths evolve and change and strengthen, and that we may not be any longer in a world where we can readily predict the strength at which these things can arrive. Although one thing that Mr. DeFore did clarify for me is that modeling does allow us to fairly accurately know the trajectory directory of storms. So that's pretty cool. I mean, you might not know how strong it's going to be when it hits you, but you'll more than likely know if, when, if it will. Before we get into that interview, we're going to jump into an interview with Katie Numi Usher and Mercy Sabal. And uh, we really hope that you enjoy what they have to say about embroidery and what being an artist means to them in connection to their identities as Garifuna women. Enjoy. You all have a show coming up at, well, is the name of the place changed now? I've seen some different name for it. What's it called now? So they have a new logo. Last year, Image Factory turned 25, so this is like the 26th year. And um, it's very colorful. And it says Imagination Factory, but not factory in English, but factory in Korean. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, I guess we're getting more into discovering what it is that the space does, right? And who it and serves. In, in, imagination. It's the image factory. Yes. Katie, I saw a couple of months ago that you had teased that this show coming up. You didn't mention who you'd be working with at the time, but then it came out of it was Mercy. How did this collaboration come about? And what does it mean for you to be have, have been able to do a sort of collaborative work? I find it very funny because I, what I know from you is that you have sometimes expressed hesitation with doing collaborative projects and suddenly this project that's super collaborative came about. Yeah, so Miss Marcy Sabal that I read about in a book called um, Made in Belize, 33 Contemporary Artists by Maggie Turner, introduces herself as a African Garifuna woman who has been doing embroidery, crocheting, sewing since she was 15 years old. So this piece right behind us that was done in 2003 
I would learn about when I went to sixth form and I took Yasser Musa's class, Understanding Art. And he talked about, of course, you know, all the European artists, North American artists, South African artists, any artists, but definitely to Belizean artists. So Ms. Mercy will tell you why I pestered her <laughs> until he agreed to do the show with me. Right, Ms. Mercy? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> she just, every time the phone rings and I look and I see it's her phone number, I say, why this girl not left me alone? But then, um... The second time she called, there was an excitement in her voice. The third time she called, there was a challenge. I do not like to be challenged. <laughs> yeah. And so I accepted. I asked her, I don't know you. I don't know if you know me, but... And she mentioned Gilvano Swayze. And I've done quite a lot of exhibitions with Yasser Musa and Gilvano right here at the Image Factory. But after so many years, uh, like Image Factory just went to sleep. And then she, she really challenged me. And so I decided, okay, let's do it. Here we are. Here we are. So what has this challenge brought forth in your work for you from this latest collection? What you bring forth? Yeah, what, did, what does it make for you here? I had always known that I was one of the images for the image factory. And I said that between both of us, we, we will be able to make the image factory come back alive. Wow. And that was the challenge. So it's bring a... back the image factory as the image factory I used to know. So this is a revival project of not just the craft of embroidery, but also the space yes. that you all are, are, are displaying your work in. in. Yes. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yes. So what are some aspects of the work of embroidery that drew you to it, Katie? Well, actually, I used to look at my grandmother do embroidery for us. She used to make some pillowcases and I spent a lot of time growing up with my grandmother in Belmopan and I would just watch her um, sewing all sorts, right? And so when I was studying in Merida and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, all of a sudden I decided, you know, I want to go back into embroidery. I don't know how to embroider. I'm teaching myself as I go along different stitches. And so last year with Yasser, we started to do uh, research on Belize's 48 year of political independence and starting to look at um, cultural movements and Belizean artists. And I found this amazing video by Sean Quillen and I always forget the young lady name. Please forgive me. It's called Belize Mequigo. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and Geraldine were... Sosa? Okay. Yes, because he keep calling mm -hmm. her Jer, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so they got our girl and they talked to Miss Merton and she mentioned um, Sarawi Women of the Soil, Women of the soil. Mm -hmm. and so I looked it up and it was amazing because in the 80s I think in 1985 they were doing like microfinancing they were mm -hmm. doing um, revival of all these beautiful craft works and how to make it very lucrative and I was like what this steep right mm -hmm. um, and so I just reached out I begged Gilvana for Miss Mercy number and that's where the pestering started at about <laughs> you know in April just constant pestering hi Miss Mercy 
Yeah. And this is it. Uh, and uh, so yeah, we don't know. Mm-hmm. So, so Mercy, how, can you share us a bit of your insights on how it's been to have had such a long career as an artist and to still be working? Um, a lot of my favorite artists, I realized that what well, part of it is this sort of consistency and an ability to live as an artist, you know, whether that's economically or not being less important than it just being part of you, just totally, you know. What happened is I noticed that um, for me, my Garifuna culture was dwindling. Mm. And I sat down and questioned myself, what could I do to keep my culture alive? And then I went into dolls. I do dolls, I do wall hangers, I do aprons, I do bags. And the sweetest thing of it is that what I do is from my ancestors. Mm-hmm. And so, whenever you buy a doll specifically from me, my doll has a name. And I always remember an elder that has passed away who was so nice to me. I learned and I keep the spirit of that elder alive. Mm. through my craft Hmm. so I can always say my if my granny may live in now we would be doing whatever and that bring cold seed and that makes me know that I am connected with my ancestor and I love that feeling and so through COVID, there was no sale going on, but I did not give up on my ancestors. See them all there? Yeah, because it's not just about making the thing, but what energy that that item connects to. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's about being part of a lineage. And yes. It's interesting that you also, in that time, found Katie, who is now another part of that lineage too, mm-hmm. in a different way. Mm-hmm. Because then... I had always taught her about her as ah, that I just want simple Creole girl. <laughs> so I didn't I didn't want to deal with her. But then it was right here when there was a connection with my ancestors and they told me that she Dagarifuna. And so I turned to her and I asked her, I said, You Dagarifuna? And she said, um, half? I said, oh, you are just like me. <laughs> because my father is a full-fledged Garifuna. My mother is Creola Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so um, my dad didn't speak to us never a day in our home. He did not speak Garifuna to us. Mm. He said, if you are interested you will learn from your friends at school. And I was 23 years old when I heard a Garifuna song 
from Dolores Gibson. And I just love that song. And so I took the a plate and then I hold it and I write the words and then I gone to an elder and I asked to please translate. And that made me so proud of myself at I, I practice at this point I understand the Refuna more than I can speak it. I I understand it well, but there are some of the words it is right here, but curving around my tongue. But I am Marcy Sabal and proud to be a Garifuna. Oh, that's powerful. And Katie, I feel like you're also in the midst of a similar language reclamation project for yourself. So I wonder what is maybe the relationship you all see between language and the art form in which you all are engaging in right now. Perfect. I think art is a language in and of itself. So I, f I have found, you know, trying to learn Garifuna now and trying to learn better Creole that it puts me in a deeper understanding of myself. Mm -hmm. And so right. it enriches my art, like what I'm able to do and how I'm able to express myself. Yeah, totally. So what's, what are you excited about in regards to the show? How, do you, are, how are you hoping that people engage with the art of embroidery through it? Well, I just really want us to look at who we consider as great Belizean artists. I want us to take a deep look at what we consider great Belizean art. And I feel like, when, especially when it comes to somebody like Marissa Sabal, who for decades has used her art to preserve Garifuna culture, I want her to get her recognition. So for me, that's my big, that would be my big like end game there. That's what I'm rooting for. <laughs> and for you, Mercy? Same thing. Really? All right, you just better recognize game is basically the end of it, right? <laughs> exactly. You have to know who that is Jenna, right? Of course. I, I consider myself a rookie and she that a general, so I like, oh, <laughs> yeah. recognize Jenna. <laughs> well, you, you, did the, you did the hard work, which is you got in touch with the best and then you tried to learn from yeah, the best. Yeah, and, and I, I want us to keep up this relation mm -hmm. and I want us to go more deeper into our culture and bring out of ourselves for ourselves and then we can open it up to others and That's then they will say wow look at me a full garifuna and i am not interested and look at those two that is just half garifuna and watch the power that they're pushing behind them Thanks to Ms. Sabal and Katie for sharing their insights on art and how art helps them to explore their identities. Thanks to Mr. DeFore for sharing the importance of Nemo's role, especially during this time of year, and how us as civilians can help. Well, thank you so much for coming here. I have been excited to talk to Nemo. As you know, as all of Belize hopefully knows, we're in the midst of, of uh, hurricane season for 2021. Another what is said to be by the National Meteorological Society, an active season. Um, but before we get into the nitty-gritty stuff about this, 
Um, Mr. DeFore, I really wanted to know what are the origins of Nemo? When did Nemo come about? And what was the motivation behind the country's need to develop this organization? Good question. The organization, as it is now called NEMO, National Emergency Management Organization, was formed in February of 1999. And the catalyst, if you wish, that caused it to form Hurricane Mitch mm -hmm. in 1998, if you can recall, in October, the lease was threatened by a devastating hurricane, Category 5 hurricane at that. And because of the structure the government had at that time, which was the Central Emergency Organization, CEO, which wasn't a permanent department system. It was just specific line ministries coming together to respond to a hurricane, sometimes just a couple of days before or weeks before. Wow, seriously? Just like that. I, I used to be the BDF intelligence officer at the time, and I was responsible for the maps and the coordination of the tracking of the hurricane. So I would report in September when there's a storm out, and I would set up the operations room, and you'll get the brief from Mr. Carlos Fuller at the time, and you then do what you were tasked to do as the military liaison person, and then you just disband, and you go back to regular function, if something comes up again, you return. And that, that's the way it used to work compared to what we have now. Now we have a national structure starting at the top chaired by the prime minister. And below that we have the minister of disaster risk management, which is in the Ministry of Spe uh, Sustainable Development, Climate Change and Disaster Risk Management, Honorable Orlando Habet. And with that we have 13, 15 sorry, national operational committees. We just added the Maritime Coordinating Committee and the Special Needs and Disability Committee. So now NEMA went from 13 to 15 national operational committees which are set at the ministry level. These committees are chaired by mostly chief executive officers and they form the national NEMO executive. So whenever you hear there's a NEMO executive meeting that is the group that will be meeting under the chair of the cabinet secretary on behalf of the prime minister. Unless we convene a general assembly type meeting with the prime minister, the ministers and CEOs, which we will use for some specific threats, the general arrangement would be the chief executive officers, the chairpersons of those national committees that would meet, if, well, with COVID, we'd meet in the training room due to space. And that would be the leadership of the NEMA system. And then below that, you have the ministry with Dr. Williams, who is Kenneth Williams, who is the CEO for the ministry mm -hmm. that is in charge of our department. And then you have the department, which I am the head of the department, who manages the offices around the country, along with five warehouses and different equipment, and running the emergency support functions in terms of alert, search and rescue, damage assessment, housing and shelter, you know, medical care and public health, recovery, mitigation infrastructure works. And so we have these emergency functions of NEMO, which is a part of our regular programming that we do. And that comes under my office to ensure that the country is aligned, you know, with disaster risk management and development and sustainable development and related matters. So a little bit more than 20 years and we've gone from having a temporary organization to something that is this extensive in terms of the 
coordination that is involved now. That's right. In, in about, say, 22 years, 1999, you know, 22 years there about. And that's a massive leap forward in terms of um, institutional development of an emergency framework for a state. And why I say that is that in other countries, they would have what is known as civil defense. And the civil defense entity has to call upon the central government or the national government to support them. In the case of NEMO, our civil defense equivalent, which is NEMO, is embedded within the line ministries. So in non-crisis times, you have leadership, planning, coordination, resources, and in crisis time, all of that is brought to bear through a natural transition where that committee which meets on a regular basis under the tutelage or guidance of the ministry goes into action and so you have a smooth transition from non-crisis preparations to response in times of crisis. And you can't get a better, flexible, you know, dynamic, robust fit than that in, in disaster risk management systems. Why was Hurricane Mitch the turning point for this change from CEO to NEMO? Specifically, I'm asking because Mitch is widely known for having been a hurricane that narrowly missed Belize and we were we were spared its most devastating impact. So um, I'm finding it interesting that it was a near-miss hurricane that changed things as opposed to one that, you know, like a case like Hurricane Hattie that hit us directly and pretty much changed a lot of, well, we're sitting in Belmapan because of Hattie. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the wisdom in establishing NEMO tells us that the framers or the coordinators and the planners who saw the need for it figured out the consequences would have been grieved if we were impacted mm. and if ever a threat as such were to occur again and a system and a structure like NEMO is not in place, you could imagine the catastrophic devastation and potential loss of life and damage to property and the impact on people and the community and the economy that would take place if you don't have a structured approach to preparing for these large-scale events. So I think that opened up the eyes of the minds of the people who were leading at the time to say, listen, this will not work. What we have in place will not suffice for the types of threat that we saw from Hurricane Mitch. So we need to put a system in place. The Red Cross played a, a role in that. Mm -hmm. And so Nemo was born on the 1st of February, 1999, so to speak. And we have never looked back since. It started on uh, Mr. Anthony Sylvester, the first National Emergency Coordinator, now deceased, and General Arthurs, Brigadier General Earl Arthurs, re retired, and myself. We are the forefathers, if you wish, of the NEMA system. What skills do you think you've developed over the course of your time with NEMO? And has anything changed in terms of how you view the way in which emergency preparedness for hurricanes specifically need to be happening in Belize? In these times, one of the key things is early preparation. Because of the dynamics, again, dealing with people who are changing, moving, transferred, retired, etc. It's not a fixed environment. Yes. And so what I've learned is that you have to move early, start early, get people engaged early, and it has to be in a joint combined approach, meaning it has to be across all sectors, all of government approach. You cannot say we will do this one activity 
and only engage this ministry, you know, because they are responsible for that committee. That will not work. You have to have a cluster approach where if you're doing uh, activity with one committee, committee with similar functions or dependent functions are to be invited, so you have a more holistic approach. Yes. So then the left hand knows what the right hand is doing and you get much better results. The next one is to engage the public early and consistently and to teach people the, the essence of disaster risk management because the public is the greatest strength of the National Emergency Management Organization because if the people know what to do, what to expect, where to go, how to move, what to take, then 50% of the, the, the troubles and concerns of response and recovery will be, will be dealt with by the people themselves. So that is one of the things. And then to understand that you're never out of the woods. Never become complacent because you don't know what the next hazard will bring, the next hurricane or flood event will bring. And each one has its own dynamics, especially mm -hmm. when you look at hurricane. You could say, well, a particular hurricane, like for example, look at Hurricane Elsa, no tropical storm, moving at a mass at a rapid speed, 29 miles per hour. That's you know that is like almost unprecedented. That's one of the fastest moving storm. And then you could get a storm which is two, three hundred miles. Hopefully not. We don't see those much again in radius. Or you could get a storm which is compact in size, small but powerful, with extreme you know winds of up to maybe 200 miles per hour, you could get a storm which is wet. You get a storm that is bringing 10 to 15 inches of rainfall in front of it mm -hmm. before it makes landfall. So the dynamics of preparation is very crucial in terms of understanding that the threat you face is never the same templated one. You could never say, well, the last time we got impacted by a Category 1 hurricane, and this is a Category 1 hurricane again, so the, the layout or the concerns or the rollout should be similar. You cannot do that because you have to look at all the variables and all the factors, you know, the population density, the location, the amount of vulnerable families in that area, the terrain layout, you know, the potential for certain secondary impacts and things like that. What, what is in its path? What is it doing prior to making landfall in terms of the environment? Mm. You know, all of those things you have to consider. Is the ground already saturated? Or if it's dry, then you realize there's some absorption capacity from rainfall. So maybe the flooding or the runoff will not be as bad. There are lots of variables you have to consider. The wind, you know, the direction of movement and, and things like that. The sea surface temperature, the, the wind shear factors in the atmosphere. So every system is not the same. What is Nemo doing right now to provide this sort of education on the great variability of storms, as you're saying? and other aspects of preparedness that the public needs to be involved in, such as evacuation protocol? Well, in terms of taking the last one first, we have an evacuation system in place, which is in the case of Belize City, under the coordination of the Belize City Emergency Committee, you know, a.k.a. CIMO. And they have all the routes, the pickup points, the bus companies that would be involved, the constituencies that those buses will go to, in terms of evacuating people to Belmopan or further along into, into the Cayo district. And so that protocol is reviewed uh, twice before the hurricane season. Well, normally we usually do it one, but this year we managed to do it twice with the National Transport and Evacuation Committee. 
and we had a session discussing this live on the Facebook uh, page for Belize City, where yeah. they, they did a session couple, I'll say about two months ago, mm-hmm. which was very educational and informational for, for people listening in. And we do through our training, like next week we'll be having training in Belize City. And when we discuss, for example, a train on shelter management, shelter, shelter management, the scenarios of potential systems and what they can do, they start to the public officers, you know, in terms of that understanding. We do this in schools, even virtually, with some of the uh, coordinators around the country, like, for example, up in Corozal. So the general public, because before COVID, one of our strength was going into schools. We did a lot of public outreach and community outreach with the village chairpersons and the villagers and going into the schools with the teachers and the children to the point where we have drills for tsunami and things like that in San Pedro where the kids know exactly what to do for dam break exercise up in Kaya where we have three dams. We do simulation as well and people are involved, the schools, the children. That's the, the best form of uh, in transmitting knowledge or transferring knowledge when you get the, chil- the children involved in the activities in terms of disaster risk management work that we do and they go home. Many times the parents don't speak English but they are learning in English and they can speak for example Spanish at home mm-hmm. and they would translate and say ma this is how you do that dad this is how we do that you know when Nemo says XYZ so that has been one of the more powerful avenues in terms of educating people. We have our website which we display different information we put up information on our facebook page you know with media engagements like this i would mention things of this nature when i'm interviewed by love fm or other media houses just before maybe a week or four days before impact some of these information that we are discussing would be you know presented to people to let people know what's happening and mass media social media you only need one outlet from this for example this would be latched on to every media house everybody can access it facebook people sharing it and that is one of the, the things that is working to our advantage right now social media you know so i think we are reaching people because we, we monitor the hits on our website mm-hmm. when there's a threat we are up to 30,000 mm-hmm. 40,000 hits does nemo currently have a way or a interest in assessing individual homes hurricane preparedness we are we started at the national level with national structures and then at the second tier we moved on to developing district systems so each municipality has an emergency committee Corozal district emergency committee all the way down to Toledo and then we worked down to village emergency committee where most communities have some form of an emergency committee that will coordinate with the district to ensure, you know, information messages are reaching out to people so that people know what to do. And then we look at where next to go and the strength of Nemo now moving forward for the next cycle or period is house to house in terms of engaging to neighborhood watch and other, you know, entities at the community base level where you're now dealing with neighborhoods and house to house, going knocking on people's door like a salesman and saying, this is what we have to offer, a sample of a, of a um, family emergency plan. It's free. Mm-hmm. Here you go. You're, you're thinking of building or putting on an extension. We have a plan to do that, which is free, which is certified by Central Building Authority. And so now that is the next visionary phase of NEMO, to get now house to house to house. 
so that we're in people face. You know, I do that sometimes randomly by calling. I would be in my office and I just look in the days of the telephone directory, you know, and I would just call up and say, I am so and so from Nemo, how are you? Where do you live? How are you prepared? What, what's happening? You know, and if you do that now with social media, that will go like wildfire. You yeah. Know? So the, the, the face-to-face, host-to-host is the, is the next step to developing Nemo in terms of getting the population, because we're growing fast. When for Hurricane Mitch, it was about 232,000 people in 98. Now we almost double that population 22 years later. So the tool we have now is social media to reach people quickly and to also do the leg work going house to house. How does procurement of resources for emergency response work with Nemo and how does distribution work? Procurement works as follows the items that we have in the warehouse. We have five warehouses countrywide and we would identify what we call our frontline stocks, you know, food, water, sleeping material, cleaning supplies, you know, hygiene and stuff and things like that that people will need immediately or in terms of being in a shelter or in the aftermath and we have the ministry which governs us sustainable development climate change and disaster risk management with the CUAS the controller who we would submit to request cap 2 funding so that the ministry of finance upon the receipt of that with the justification and the items to be procured would approve those funds and then the ministry through the system that we have and the department would acquire from various um, uh, suppliers you know going through the government system and the government process so it's basically in line with the way government will acquire goods and services mm-hmm. you know because there are standard arrangements according to the stores orders financial orders which which must be followed uh, sometimes Nemo, because of the nature of how we do business and what we do, you know, we will be given certain consideration depending on what's happening at a particular time, you know, the urgency of a situation. And then for people to get assistance in terms of the issuing it out, issuing out of those supplies, an assessment has to be done. So one of the committees we have is known as the Damage Assessment and Needs Analysis Committee, abbreviated DANA. And that committee comprises of persons from Relief and Supplies, which is human development, who are the humanitarian tip of the spear, if you wish, for Nemo, mm-hmm. who would go out quickly and do rapid assessments supported by housing, supported by lands department, because the National Committee structure falls under the Ministry of Natural Resources, and they will identify the impact community, the affected families or persons, get their names. They have a system known as COBO, which is a software which is it is uploaded into to tabulate and to ensure there is no repetition of assistance to different people. And once they have that set of needs established and they have the warehouses notified through Nemo, they would then have vehicles from the BDF, as an example, trucks from the BDF that would show with under the uh, assignment of a relief and supplies coordinator from the ministry who would get the items, signed for it, and those items would be taken out to the recipient or beneficiary who would also sign for it and those farms would come back and get um, reconciled. And once it leaves the warehouse, we have an issue voucher and a receipt voucher system. So when we get things from the supplier, it goes on the receipt voucher. And when we issue, 
it goes on the issue voucher. So everything is tracked well. Yes, and every everything is tracked. We have great. to run. We have to run a very tight ship because we get international donation. Mm -hmm. No Brazil, Mexico, other countries would support Nemo, and if they ask for a reporter to visit or to see how the system is set up, yeah, we have to show high degree of you know uh, transparency and accountability. Is there a scenario that Nemo is prepared for in order to provide? drinkable water to the entire population of Belize City. That is a massive uh, scenario, which is one we plan for worst case scenario, yeah. as you mentioned. I'm always wondering yeah. about that one, because yes, yes. water is to me a concern that not enough people are concerned about, right. are thinking about. Well, for a major event like that, first of all, let's start from the beginning. Yes. People will have to stockpile and store as much water, you know, to ensure that individually you have at least seven days or as much as 10 days supply of water. And that's usually a gallon per day, they say? Yeah, roughly a gallon per, per, per day. Per person. For, per person, yes. you know? A gallon per day. And once you have an idea as to how much water you need, then you have to make it upon your own, in terms of your responsibility, looking at your emergency family plan to ensure that you have water. Because that's one of the biggest needs. You need water for everything, mm -hmm. and especially for hygiene purposes. Yep. So there's no secondary impact from COVID-19, as an example, you know, because mm -hmm. places are not clean and washed down. So BWS have a plan in terms of how they would access and regenerate their water sources to ensure that water can be provided quickly we have assistance where we would have to use water trucks in some cases. That's why one of the things we have a committee by the name of Mitigation, Infrastructure, Access and Works Committee, which provide clearing the road network to critical lifeline facilities so that those could become functional as quickly as possible. Suppliers would be contacted for water. We also have international partners, you know, a West Indian well, I say, a guard, let's say a, a guard ship or a ship from the United Kingdom is always in the Caribbean, which has certain capability of providing potable water. And that would be moving closer to the likely Caribbean country that would be affected. We have uh, the Mexican who will be able to come in and, and provide certain support and assistance. So we have an international partners group that will be brought to bear to, to assist us with some of the resources that we would need. But the first help starts with individual. And you hit the nail on the head when you say, we do, we're not too sure how prepared people are in terms of certain resources. Mm -hmm. But one thing I know, the Belizean people, we are very intelligent people. And we have experience. And we know we're in the hurricane season. But we also have a culture of liking to wait for the last minute. So we are imploring on people, don't wait for the last minute. To stock up on whatever supplies you need. We know that many people have lost their jobs, so it's not an easy thing to say as if though everybody is going to do it. But who can need to do it so that they can help those who don't have? Yeah. You know? But the bottom line up front, your individual preparation is on you. We have seen the television in, in, in cases in terms of Bahamas and Puerto Rico and what those people went through. And those things should be some of the motivating factors that tells us, hey, listen, we need to be prepared in Belize. The earlier the warning will help trigger the system, but then everybody's going to rush for the same mm -hmm. supplies. So the smart people, if you go back to preparation from um, time immemorial, the ten virgins, five had oil in their lamps and five didn't. The five who had oil went into the to the ceremony, 
the five who didn't have to go and look for, for oil when they, come back, when they came back, the door was closed, they couldn't enter. So that's a lesson from, you know, thousands of time and morale that we have to be prepared. It's the ones who are prepared will be the ones who will survive and who will get in. I wanted to talk then about last year's storm, um, Eta and Iota, and how Nemo responded to that and whether there were any lessons learned from that, those series of catastrophes that happened in very short succession. Definitely. The, the response for Eta and Iota, if you remember, that was during general election season. Yes, so at the so, end of November. Yes, so you had, in that sense, a government service that was oriented towards doing a general election. One was in October and one was in, 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 in uh, November. They were like 10, 11 days apart, you know? And so the climate alone was one whereby we were challenged because even a few of our staff had to work for the general elections period, you know? So one of the things that affected us was the orientation, the focus of the public servants to say, I, I could recall people, there were some times when it was asked, should the election, will the election still go on? Should it go on because of the first flood event from ETA? And there are some places that were unreachable for certain public officers, some, some of the polling station, because the, the area was flooded out in Belize Rural or in Cayo, and they still managed to get there and get through. So in that backdrop, we, we have to recognize that the response from Nemo was trying to deal with that scenario and also getting the emergency system up and running. We had COVID-19 flaring at that time as well. So the face-to-face -face in terms of setting up your EOC or your command center wasn't there. So it was a virtual coordination. And that's totally different than when you're in the command center and you're saying, transport, you need to do this now. Housing and shelter, please give us an update. What's the situation with those shelters open? Are there any needs? Has the doctor visited to ensure, you know, you're doing all of this remotely? All of this by um, WhatsApp and, and other means. And so confirmation is challenging. Feedback to get back information was challenging in terms of like getting daily reports or reports in the morning, reports in the evening. So you have to hunt for that report, get that update, push for it to get a sense. And all of this is happening with me now as the national coordinator because we're virtual. So it's coming to me and I am coordinating and ensuring certain things are happening. And, and then you have this kind of mindset that people didn't have their two feet on the ground, so to speak, at particular levels, you know? And, and, and so certain decisions had to be made based on the institutional systems that are in place with the public officers who are always there to say, well, listen, your chief at this level may not be participating for whatever reason, you have to make the decision to do X, Y, Z. And, and that was one of the concerns and challenges mm. because now you're placing people in a position who are normally at that level making that type of decision, you know? Yes. And so we, we had to do that. One of the um, key lessons learned was the dealing with the relief and supplies, you know? Making sure that because of the magnitude of the system in terms of having two events, one on top of the other, the scale of resources required. Whenever we are faced with a scenario like that again, we have to double and triple up on our resources because the demands in terms of the losses and the needs for people was way beyond the threshold. So that is one of the critical things we, we understood or recognized. 
the assessment of damages as well in terms of making sure that the police and the BDF and the Coast Guard are more integrated in, in, in that process and things like that. And, and to, to look at, we also need to improve in, in, in areas of rescue because there are many cases of rescue where the type of vessel you need, you know, and the amount of vessels you need were, were, were not necessarily earmarked early enough because remember Eta Nayota flood situation was unprecedented. Yes. We never before in the history of Belize experienced that type of flooding. You know, so in, in many regards, the preparations were not at that heightened level. And, and the system as we have it is challenged in some areas. And we were almost overwhelmed, which is good, because it taught us how to deal with something at, the, at that scale again. And so if it's a lesser event, it should work much smoother and much easier, you know? So those are some of the things that, that we learned. And, and to also notify people as early as possible so that if it's raining in Guatemala and the flood events is on the Mopan and it's in Guatemala, warn people and this is where the, the notion as you mentioned host to host if we have to go drive to the communities like Cala Creek, Bulletry, Santa Familia, listen ladies and gentlemen flood waters are coming we try to do that a lot in the advisory with the people for Belize Rural to let them know when it's raining in the high ground in Cayo this water is going to run after the low ground in Belize Rural within seven to ten days so today might be okay for you but we are telling you next week Wednesday Thursday you will be in their streets if you are not moving your cattle, if you are not reaping your crops, if you are not relocating or know which shelter you will go to, you know. So those, and it's a similar approach you have to use for the people along the, the Makal and the Mopan to let them know on the Belize River up in the west, this water that is coming out of Guatemala will impact us within three to four days time. You need to make preparations starting today as to what actions you take. Do you feel like this year things are different already in terms of the planning for the hurricane season that oh, we're in? Oh yes, oh yes. We have been doing things such as digging drains as an example to alleviate flooding in certain communities, you know, using our Nemo Baku. And that, you don't know the results of it until the rain and the floods come to see how well it, it was done. But that gives us a sense of assurance that it shouldn't be as impactful for certain years and certain communities, you know. so. Um, in terms of uh, identifying who will need assistance, we are somewhat ahead of the curve in the sense that we now know by district have a list of all the vulnerable families that have been affected repeatedly mm. from flood events. So we could almost look at Cala Creek, look at Sandra Familia and different communities and say, these families in here, you will need to relocate and this shelter is the better shelter, not the community center in because that had flood uh, problem problem with the flood event because it was so the water was so high. You will need to move to this location in town in San Ignacio to this uh, um, school or whatever the case may be. So that, that that type of lesson learned and and preparation and knowing who the audience or the people are that will be most at risk to be able to notify and warn them and to have things in place for them earlier. I think that that puts us in a little better position than, than we were last year. The last topic I want to talk about with you is climate change and its impact on Nemo's work. It's still inconclusive, and I want to be clear on that. It's still inconclusive exactly how the increase in carbon emissions and the increase in um, carbon concentration in the atmosphere 
affects hurricanes. That's yet to be specifically determined as far as I understand it. But it there is a clear relationship between warmer waters and strengths of hurricanes. One way in which people talk about the impact on uh, of, of climate change on storm activity is rapid intensification. Can you describe rapid intensification for our audience and give us your thoughts on whether this is something that is unprecedented and that changes the ways in which we think about storms? Yeah, it, the, the history is showing that more of the systems are going from sometimes tropical storm to category two and stronger within less than 24 hours. There have been numerous cases of such over the last uh, five years, for sure. So there is rapid intensification where you see a tropical wave and you're planning that, okay, the prognosis is for it to be a tropical depression in, let's say, 24 hours. And before you, right after that tropical depression, or given the name TD5, for example, and within three hours of the next uh, update from the Weather Bureau, it is now a tropical storm. That is rapid intensification mm -hmm. because the analysis did not imply that it would have developed so quickly. The prognosis was we are expecting a tropical depression to farm within the next 24 hours. And immediately after that 24 hours or sometimes before, you're dealing with a hurricane. And so, yes, indeed, climate change does have an impact. I wasn't a strong proponent of climate change in many regards, but the logic is if heat radiates down onto the earth and you have ice cover, white reflects heat, so it goes back up into the atmosphere. If you lose your ice cover and the ocean is darker in terms than ice, then darkness absorbs heat, so the ocean will absorb the heat and expand, uh, and the temperature of the sea surface will increase. And so the intensification for increase in storms is related directly to ocean temperature. And, and so I could see the, the rationale and, you know, the logic in that. So indeed, climate change is having an impact. And then if you have sea level rise, yes, then your storm surge at high tide because of sea level rise factor will be much higher. So you have more damages from, from storm surge, you know. The wind, and if it's intensified, then it means that your wind action from that storm will be greater. So you'll see stronger storms with stronger winds, creating more damages to, to, to homes and to buildings and to crops and, and, and things like that, and investments, you know, along your coast and even further inland, you know, antennas and electrical poles and things like that. So there is a direct correlation to, you know, the climate changing and the fact that storms are intensifying because it is, it is being seen. So we have to know, not only prepare for hurricanes and floods and other hazards which are related in terms of intensification, but also the impacts of climate change. Yes. Because you have wetter periods. You could have excessive rainfall related to climate change, which you didn't have in particular parts of the country in a particular time of the year, which are so impactful that the fallout sometimes greater than the impact from a hurricane. So we cannot just plan in isolation. We have to plan, you know, in a, in a joint manner pertaining to climate change, its impact on hazards such as hurricane floods and others. And, and so we have to be cognizant of that. You have excessive heat because you have the opposite to the rainfall, which is drought. 
and you have now heat dome. You see heat dome in Canada, yep. where temperatures reach as high as 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Yep. That is serious, you know. And it destroyed a whole town, got just caught on fire, and got, the whole town got destroyed in British Columbia. Exactly. Which is unheard of. Unheard of. And so in Belize, we have to start preparing. Once yes. that heat dome and those heat waves start moving further south and, and impact Belize, we could be for in for some serious times. So we have to do advanced strategic planning as a state to look at how we will be impacted by excessive rainfall, you know, sea level rise, um, excessive heat and drought and things like that. And these some of these things are slow onset event because they occurs they will occur seven years from now, twelve years from now, fifteen years from now. So the planning and the forecasting has to look that far. And on that note, there will be a um, outlook forum by the, the meteorological service on Great. Thursday, which I'm sure we're going to hear more of these from a few experts and the likes of, you know, awesome. the chief met and some of the senior meteorologists, you know. So, so one, one last question that maybe you're not in the best position to answer, but I wanted to ask you anyways, is concerning the language about storms. Now, it feels to me that the language of, of uh, storm forecasting is not acknowledging the increased likelihood of storm intensification in that there is you know when with this year right when they refer to it as an above average active season i was wondering like those averages are based on pre-existing record yes but i'm also curious as to whether there is the need for changing the language around storms to emphasize the increased threat they pose in that we can't be you know especially for old timers mm -hmm. you know you can't apply the logic of 1985 to the world of 2022 where the world is much hotter we spoke about rapid intensification we may no longer be in a state of being where the average you know complies with the reality yeah, that, that is true because of the, the trends and things that we're now seeing is telling us that it's one thing to look at the, well, the, the, the models have proven and it is now more established in the scientific community. I'm not a scientist, you know, I'm talking of the strength of research and the chief meteorological officer, Mr. Ronald Garden, who we are always in communication with and who has educated us, where he has said the, the models are much more accurate in terms of paths, mm -hmm. the direction that that storm will take because of the various factors which has remained consistent. What, what the models cannot do is give you the same degree of accuracy for intensification. So we know that in, on Facebook people will put up the Red, the red um, hashtag lines as to the potential to say, Belize, we're in trouble, this is coming our way. That's a wide range prognosis as to where that path will be. Yeah. Now the models are narrowing to say within 50 miles north or south of that line is the path that system will take. And we saw that with ELSA, mm -hmm. which was very, very accurate in terms of the predicted path, which is good, but the intensification where is where you do, they don't have control. And one of the things you don't have control with intensification is if there's a high pressure ridge or wind shear mm -hmm. you know sea surface temperature well that is known but there are so many factors that you cannot really predict so one other thing i think you alluded to was to say 
we need to be concerned about what the hazard can do. So a category one will bring storm surge of this height, wind which will affect trees and buildings in this manner, and a category two will do this. So when the storm is about to make landfall, prior to people need to be oriented more to what the impacts likely to be from that system than the category in, in many regards, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that is where the strength of educating the public is important because it's not the category alone, it, it's what is associated with that category of storm, what the expectations are, you know, in terms of what can be damage, failure of structures, the height of storm surge, the potential among the rainfall, and, and things like that, you know? So mm -hmm. indeed, we have to look more in that direction in terms of when we are educating and informing people. Yeah, it's a more expanded understanding of what a storm is beyond the category. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I hope that with this interview, people come out with a little bit more knowledge about the wide variability of what affects a storm and also the wide effects that they can have on us as a country and, and our individual communities. Well, thank you so much for the interview. I learned a lot and I, I feel like uh, a lot more a lot more confidence in Nemo having learned what you shared about the way in which you continue to learn year after year from what is, I, I could only assume, a very stressful job at times. <laughs> that, that is for sure. If you like the show, please subscribe and consider writing a review for us over on Apple Podcasts as it helps to increase the show's visibility. If you write a five-star review, we'll read it in a future episode. If you have a climate crisis or environmental story impacting Belize you'd like to discuss, you can contact us at madafyah at gmail.com or message us on Facebook and Twitter at Madafaya and be sure to hit that follow button. And remember that our art design contest is still ongoing until the end of July 2021. So please be sure to check out our Facebook page and look at the pinned posts that will provide you with all the information you need on how to enter the art design contest that would get you $250 Belize if you win first prize. And we are considering having other prizes if we get a deluge of really good art. Thanks to Alexander Evans for providing our theme song. You can find him on Instagram at Alexander Evans Music. And thanks to Demi Williams for providing our artwork. And thanks to you for listening to Marafaya. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And remember, climate change is real and collective effort is needed to save our home. Rest when you can and find some shade.